y'all. Producer Drew here to bring you an extended interview with writer and wild man, John Lane. Even if you caught this interview in the episode, you'll still hear a lot of context that we had to cut for time. So I think you'll find it well worth checking out. Well, y'all didn't come to hear me. So let's start the show. Well, I'm here with my good friend, John Lane. John, tell us, a, tell us who you are and what you do. Thank you, Ray. Um, John Lane from Spartanburg, poet, um, retired professor from Walford College, 32 years, been out of out of the system now for two years and happy to be out. I, I loved my time as a college professor, but it really is great. One of my friends said, you got to get up every morning now and decide one thing you'll do so you get out of your pajamas. <laughs> and I like that a lot. <laughs> Well, I mean, I would say probably uh, you could share that advice with other people. <laughs> <laughs> you see a lot of people in their pajamas. Man, every day. In fact, uh, you know, students, I think they don't, they just gave up, man, about, you know how it is, midterm. They're just in pajamas. They don't even put on clothes anymore. So. Oh, man. Well, you know, John, I, I got to tell you this. Um, and I don't think I've ever told you this before, but I was thinking about this um, uh, the other night. Um, you know, I, I usually credit the poet Sharon Olds as um, someone who helped me find my voice as a poet um, and uh, and if people haven't ever read Sharon Olds they should um, yeah. and they'll, they'll should get it you know when I when I tell them that but honestly I would say you were one of the people responsible for helping me find my voice as a southern poet um, you know I met you through Kwame Dawes mm -hmm. um, and you know I think your hair was was long and wild and you know and your beard and, and, and you, you were here I think at the museum I think it was a poet summit or something like that we were doing um, and you got up and you, you read a, you read some poems or it might have been a piece of an essay and there was something about your your voice that that I've, I've always clinged to is, is so authentic um it's real um and has really as a kid who grew up in the country never really appreciating too much of of the landscape i was in at the time i was more wanting to chop it all down and tear it all up you know being a punk ass but you have really helped me to appreciate a lot of our natural world um, in ways that I did not think I would ever really appreciate. So, so I, I wanted you to drive all the way to Columbia so I could thank you. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Ray, I, that really means a lot to me coming from you. You're one of the poets I admire most mm. writing today. I, I love your poems. I, I love your spirit and, and just, um, I really appreciate it, and and we both share this working class background. Yeah, and that's not something all poets share. That's right. Um, and um, sometimes I th I think um, uh, not not all poets know that I come from this kind of deep dirt background. Mm -hmm. um, but I do. My my family was cotton mill workers in the upstate of South Carolina, and and um, and that shows up a lot in my early poetry. Not so much in. The poetry I've written um, recently, because I've I have written more about the natural world, and I was obsessed with writing about my family. The first I'm I'm in my late 60s, so I've been at this for 45 years, and and the first books that came out um, had lots of family poems in them, um, and there was always background was always the landscape, the southern landscape, right? Yeah. But the the real the real meat of the poems was was this 
this family connection that I had, you know, my, my, my alcoholic mother and suicide father. And, and I wrote about those and they, um, and so I think some people forget. I don't, I don't think you've ever forgotten that, that I come mm -hmm. from that, that, um, complex working class Southern background. And, and, um, sometimes, um, sometimes, sometimes I forget because I'm not, I'm not entirely that now. I mean, I was right. a college professor for 32 years, made a good living and, and, um, um, but it, it was it was important to me, and um, I really appreciate it. That, cool. That means a lot to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know th there is something about, um, and I, and I like the way uh, you know that that connection sort of being being the landscape, you know. But but your your work, uh, and, you know, and I, I think it's it, it's often disingenuous to, to to say, oh, they're a nature writer. Right. I right. mean, because you, you write on a lot of different subjects, but nature does become the sort of central focus, especially I'd say in the, in the last, you know, decade of your work has, and it's, and it's been, you know, one of the things that I think probably, um, and I'd love for you to talk some about is this experiment that you took on putting a canoe into the creek and riding that damn thing all the way out to the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, yeah. Um, that to me is, John, it's like one, one of the most badass things I've ever heard <laughs> uh, in my life. And my son keeps on to me like, Dad, we should do that. So I'm like, son, you, I don't know, man. You don't have but half the distance to go, though, man. <laughs> <laughs> how did, I mean, how did how did that get started? What, what prompted you um, to want to do that? The weirdest thing, um, th this trip you're talking about, I put in, in my backyard in Spartanburg, yeah. and I paddled 11 days um, with, with a friend, ha half, one friend paddled with me half the distance. That friend got out and went turkey hunting. Another friend got in and went the rest of the way with me, um, right below Columbia here. But um, what started it was um, I realized, I just looked out my back door one day and I said, that creek goes to the ocean. <laughs> 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 and um, my friend Janice Ray always talks about your watershed address <laughs> and everybody out there do this right now your watershed address means go to your back door or front door look out how far is the nearest creek to you what's its name what's it a tributary of 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 where's the ocean right. so for me it was John Lane at Lawson's Fork at Packlet River at Broad River, at Congaree River, at Santee River, at Atlantic Ocean. So that's 11 days right there. Wow. And I, I thought about that. I looked out and I said, I can do this. I've always wanted to do this. I paddled up and down this creek within 10 miles of here, but mm -hmm. why not put in and paddle the ocean? I wanted to do it by myself. Um, I bought the boat. I got all the gear. I had the lone and raptured male idea. You know, I was going <laughs> to get in that water by myself and suffer, <laughs> get some Jethro <laughs> boating suffering time in, you know, go by myself, enjoy it. But but my wife, Betsy, you know Betsy really well, one mm -hmm. of the hubs, founders of Hub City and a board member with you for the South Carolina Academy of Authors. Um, Betsy said, I don't want you doing it by yourself. It's hot. It's a it's dead summer. Um, there's been a drought for a year. Right. <laughs> You're not going to have a good time. And besides, I mean, it's just not a good thing. So find a friend to do it with. So I, I got a friend named Venable Vermont, 
greatest name in literature besides right. Natty Bumbo. Um, <laughs> so from Alaska, he's a South Carolinian, and he comes back every year to turkey hunt with his brother from Anchorage. Mm. And um, so he, he loves to paddle. He went to Alaska because he read John McPhee's Coming Into the Country when he was 24 years old and said, I need to be up there. Right. <laughs> um, and he left Columbia and moved to, to – um, to Alaska, but anyway, he said he'd do it. We we set up the trip, and then I discovered this children's book called Paddle to the Sea, and it's about a kid who puts a little canoe with a carved Native American Indian in it, um, and throws it in the Great Lakes, and the little canoe with the one paddler makes its way out to the Atlantic Ocean, hmm. um, and it's a great children's book. And I found a copy of it here at the the old um, South Carolina Book Festival had that wonderful antiquarian book fair. Mm-hmm. So I put my $50 down and bought a first edition of this book, took it home and said, I'm going to write my paddle to the sea. And so I um, I took that book and I took another book called um, The Santee by, um, by a wonderful um, historian who wrote about the Santee River. Um, and, um, and I sort of crossed those two books and layered it and said, I'm going to have my own trip, but I'm also going to have these these other narratives. Um, and um, just then I set it up and did it. Took 11 days. Um, nothing terrible happened. Um, um, it, was, it was an incredible trip. Um, and then I started popping into all these people who had done it already. I mean, it had mm. been done many times. I wasn't some sort of pioneer. Right. It's just that there were people spread out who had the same idea over the last 50 years and 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 did it. Um, but like I said before, you only got half that distance, Ray. You and your son ought to jump on <laughs> next week. You'd be at the ocean in six days. <laughs> I love it. Oh, sounds great. Well, and they can uh, folks can watch the video, um, uh, River Time. Yes. Um, and, uh, v- Vimeo. Um, just type in John Lane River Time, and because a couple of filmmakers, kind of renegade filmmakers from Athens, Georgia, and Atlanta, followed me down and would pop in. And um, funny thing, as a writer, that um, happened with this manuscript. When I finished the manuscript, um, <laughs> you know, I didn't want to go by myself because I didn't want to be the lone and raptured male. Right. Um, and then I finished the manuscript, and I described these filmmakers in the first chapter with us when we launched and you know videotaping all this stuff and i sent the manuscript into georgia university of georgia press published the book and um the editor wrote back and said you got to pull the filmmakers out of the first part of the book the reviewers who've read this book said they don't they want it to be you and (laughs) and venable down the river and the filmmakers give it too much of a sort of meta postmodern feel and i said but i like that said i don't i I, we wanted want you to go up these you can bring the filmmakers in later but not now not in the first chapter so um, I had to really work with this first chapter to try to not lie about them being there because they were there, but to just sort of write them out of the story. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so that that was something I didn't expect um, stylistically to happen right. in the book. Right. But, you know, you find it online, um, River Time and John Lane will get, get you to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it is it, it's it's a fascinating it, it it it's a great book to read and it's a it's a nice little companion piece really to kind of um to see that yeah in the 11 days that it would look like it rained like nine of those 11 days i mean it's like it a week and a half before we started so yeah <laughs> right. the river was flooding yeah. the entire way so yeah. um that made for a quick trip right and that I loved what you said about, you know, as you got to the Congaree um, and you talk about how, you know, you've always seen it as a as, as a working class yeah. river. Um, and, you know, for me, you know, growing up in, in the Midlands and growing up around Columbia. Yeah. I mean, like I, it was the perfect way to describe that, you know, especially that strip yeah. of where it's always sort of um uh befuddled me why we had this beautiful river and we decided on one side let's put up a maximum security prison and on the other side let's put in a chicken processing plant yeah and a sewer treatment plant right right right. right downstream (laughs) and um and then you have a big group come in 10 years ago and try to destroy the whole floodplain and in a big thank god that was squashed right but um yeah, we we you know, and I think, and I think it's because, like like my experience growing up. I mean, we you know, you just take it for granted. Like you just think it's just always there. It's always going to be there. You can just do whatever you want to with it. And then when a poet and a writer, you know, takes the time and really brings back um the 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 essence of it um and and in its existence in a whole new way um and you can't help but appreciate it what what drew you to the natural world i mean i mean i could think of a million reasons why one would want to go to the woods um but as a boy i always had a fascination we we always lived in kind of ratty houses on the edge of spartanburg and there were wild areas near them and and i would spend a lot of time outside because of my family situation and rumbling around um so that was the beginning of it and then i got to college and my best friend in college ended up being this guy who was crazy about snakes and catching snakes he ended up being a he's a famous um herpetologist who works down at the savannah river site um so he went through and got a Get, went to a PhD program and and um, followed this through and it's done really beautifully um, with it. But I, I kind of tagged along as along as the English major, the competitive English major who wanted to try to know as much as he did about the natural world. And so we would back in the days when you could still um, ride around with a six pack of beer in your car, we'd we'd um we'd get a six pack of beer and we'd go up on this was when I was maybe sophomore in college, junior in college, and we'd go up on Highway 11 along the around the mountain front and when everybody else was out partying on a friday night we'd be up there riding the road as it's called which is we'd start in i-26 and we'd ride all the way to table rock and past and then we'd ride back and forth for four or five hours on the road about 35 40 miles an hour looking for snakes out on the road and and you know when we saw where i saw my first timber rattlesnake was in the middle of highway 11 you know mm. <laughs> and um and david would jump out or i'd jump out and then we'd we'd be we'd be in this competition who could who could first of all identify it at 40 miles an hour <laughs> and then who could catch it <laughs> so um in my to today to, to this day betsy says that i'm the best she's ever seen at identifying roadkill at 55 miles an hour i'm never wrong i mean i can even if it's down to greasy splotch i can still pretty much get it because i was so attuned to learning 
to that pattern recognition um, so that I could beat David or so David could beat me. And that continued for a decade. <laughs> we would go, we would every New Year's Eve, we would go to a bar in Spartanburg and play pool till one in the morning and then drive to the Everglades um, yeah. and wake up down there and get up that right after we got up and walk this six mile canal um, into the middle of the Everglades and back and, you know, competition again, you know, who's seen, who sees the most animals, who, who can name the most birds, who can catch the most baby alligators, you know, who can jump in the ditch and catch a, ra- a water snake, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it started with that. And then I kind of backed off the competition and sort of just got into the vibe of the natural world more than that. And, um, and that I think is what, a- what ended up. And then the rivers happened. Right. <laughs> yeah, I've had 20, 25, almost 30 years now of paddling lots and lots of kayaks and canoes down lots and lots of rivers. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a way to have a little bit of a athletic um, endeavor, but also to be in the natural world at a, at a, at a legitimate pace. Right. Because um, I'm still to this day, I I just, I can't. I, I can't stand it when I'm out and, you know, motorized vehicles are on the water, whether it's jet skis or we saw one up in, um, where were we? Hawaii. We were in Hawaii recently. And they had this thing that you, you get on and you rev it up and it raises up out of the water on this one pylon. It's got this, right, have you yes, seen those? Yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. Like a, a little bitty surfboard, but it raises out of the water. And I'd never seen that. And I went, oh, great. They're going to figure out a way to go up whitewater rivers with those next. <laughs> you know, I've had lots of discussions with friends about my um, frustration with motorized rivercraft. But mm-hmm. but um, but I, I just really love being on rivers at the at that rate of speed, what I call river time. Right, right, yeah. right. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, in in rivers, I you know, are, I mean, I, you know, growing up, growing up by, a, you know, a huge lake, um, yeah. you know, but uh, the Saluda River, of course, feeding into Lake Murray, and then just there's just tons of, of creeks and, 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 you know, from either coming out of that or coming from uh, any number of springs, natural springs around the area. But there's something about moving water that, you know, I think um, is, is it, it is a, an endless poem in and of itself. Um, lots of surprises. There's, you never really know what's at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a mystery behind it. Um, and, and, and there's something that is both soothing and spooky um about rivers you know um what do you think um because i i i I do think that nature is trying to talk to us (laughs) do do you get that feeling do you do you feel like it's it's trying to know we're trying to talk to it yeah i know we are yeah Yeah. (laughs) um communicate yeah there's a communication going on it's at some level um, that's beyond or above or below what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a communication. Um, I see it yesterday. I mean, I know this is placing my um, anthropomorphizing and placing my thoughts on animals, but but these two great um, crested um, great um, crested flycatchers um, um, 
were on our back back deck and and they spent 15 minutes kind of sitting on my grill just kind of looking in the window just fascinated with us right and they they wouldn't go away they were just and they could have been just a reflection or something but but i thought there's there's some sort of connection here Mm -hmm. um whatever it is i don't know but there's a connection i think communication connection yes yeah unfortunately we we probably haven't been as in tune as we need to be no and we and um but, but but more than more than in the past, more than in the past. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. There's that all that work um, that my my colleague and great friend and paddle mentor John Pilly did with Chaser the Border Collie, where he mm. he taught Chaser 1,200 words, right? And um and just pushed the idea of what a dog knows. Mm-hmm. I mean, the dog understands verbs and nouns, right? Um, I mean, he he proved that Neil deGrasse Tyson. DeGrasse Tyson flew to Spartanburg to interview John about this research, and it was just remarkable. And and um, the whole um, the whole idea of what we don't know we don't know what animals know, right? And we know a little bit, but we don't know, and we don't know how they how they communicate or what they communicate. We privilege this podcasting, right? <laughs> over over what dolphins do when they communicate but i'm not sure that we can yeah well I, and that's an that's a wonderful segue because you know not only do you um write about rivers um but you do write about animals um, lots about animals you know yeah. and, and uh of course Ki- coyote settles the south um uh which was um a Honestly, a, a fascinating read um, because you know they, there weren't coyotes um, when I grew up. Here. Yeah, they moved in the um, last twenty years. Yeah, but they're they're here now. Yeah. I mean, there's no they're doubt. not going away, and they're not going away. Um, you know, and of course, you don't have to go far um, on any interstate and see armadillos uh, dead. Um, we haven't seen you know they weren't around when I was a kid. Um, but you know that was that was a fascinating read, and and of course, and then there's. There's the one about the hawks. Neighborhood hawks. Neighborhood hawks. I've got now, I've got a, a, a another book of essays coming out from Mercer in February, which is sort of my, well, it is my third book of my animal trilogy. I ne- Coyote, then the neighborhood hawks, and, and this one's called Coming into Animal Presence. And each essay has animals in it in some way. They're not, it's not all about animals, but s- animals will swerve into the essay in some way. And just like I had the three river books, I did Chattooga, then I did My Paddle of the Sea, and then this new one that came out just this year, Still Upright and Headed Downstream, The Collected River Writing, which collects all the poetry and nonfiction that I had not pulled into a collection yet. Mm. So I, I um, animals, rivers, um, family, um, got another nonfiction collection that I'm going to, it's going to come out from Georgia that's the the big family collection mm. that'll that'll really be the first first time I've had a, a book well, but although it's crossed with geology and soil science so right <laughs> it's called gullies of my people nice um, all about um, having seven generations of upstate folks in Spartanburg County poor tenant farmers and mill workers up there so, and it's going to be I, I i can predict it'll be something else that will raise awareness um and i think that's that's one of the, the you know really an upshot next to next to, of course really good writing but you know just an upshot to your work 
you raise such an important awareness. Um, I think, you know, as you know, uh, the, the American tendency of course is, Hey, this isn't supposed to be here or this scares me. Let's kill it. Um, and yet when you read your work, um, and, and not exclusive to you. I mean, there's other writers who are doing it. Drew Lanham comes mm-hmm. to mind, um, that, you know, that, that kind of a, important awareness to a remind us that we are not the only people on this planet. Um, that we rely on this planet, not the other way around. Uh, the planet's mm-hmm. not relying on us. I wish it, we, we would behave ourselves a little bit better, but, um, that, that kind of awareness and reminding of, of who we are and how we fit in this grand scheme of things really, I think, just helps us to appreciate our human existence in the face of all of this right like i i you know i was always troubled you know as a grad student and we would have to read you know um you know in american literature and we would go into romanticism and and all of this where you know nature was this thing that you know we had to control but couldn't control and it was the closest thing to god and it was cruel and 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 you know and yet that was never really my experience with nature it never seemed to be cruel it just seemed to be nature like mm-hmm. there was it was us trying to impose yeah what we think it is and not the other way yeah around. one of the th- the things I, I say a lot about cody this book cody settles the south is i wanted to 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 create a voice and a narrative voice that 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 could be read by both cody lovers and cody huggers and cody haters mm-hmm. and i wanted the, even the cody haters to read it and go hmm yeah and but i wanted to have these three thesis statements um that people would pick up and one was you've two of them you've already mentioned one was they're here and when i started writing the book a decade ago not everybody knew that right now i think most people know because they've seen one yeah, seen them. in yeah. their backyard um but most people didn't know they were here hardly anybody knew they weren't going away mm-hmm. um and the third thesis was um, there, um, the third thesis was, and you have to decide as an individual what you want to do about it, because it's not about the coyotes. They're here and they're not going away. It's about you. Right. And so if you're a coyote hater, that hate is more about you than it is about the coyotes. And um, I've had so many discussions with people about this. I mean, because so many people hate coyotes so deeply. Hmm. And they hate them for various reasons. They hate them because they 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 eat their deer. I've heard that so many times. But right. they're eating my deer, and I said, "Well, that's about you. That's not about the coyotes because <laughs> right. you're eating somebody's cows, you know, right. or you're eating the deer, you know." Um, but that's about you. And then people hate them because they're fearful of coyotes eating them. Right. That's about you that's not about the coyotes coyotes have attacked human beings they usually attack human beings because the human beings have been feeding them right (laughs) (laughs) and they'll bite them on the hand or some other there have been other attacks but but um but those those reasons to hate coyotes are not about the coyotes the coyotes are not going away and um we've got to learn somehow to live with them Hey y'all, you know who it is. Just thought you might like to know there's more coming soon. You know, more? What? You keep acting like you don't know what I mean. 
come on. I'm talking about more exhibitions, more classes, more programs, more concerts, more tours, more art, more podcasts. There's always more at the CMA. See? More. And members get even more than that. More mission, more parties, more benefits than I can name in this ad. In fact, it might be easier if you just go see for yourself. Because if I have to list how much more there is, we'll be here all day. You can see more for yourself on our website, www.columbiamuseum.org. And now, for more of the show. I think that was one of the things that was that was most eye-opening for me um, was just that how much how much of it was about me and had nothing to do with the animal. And you know, you were talking about snakes for the longest time. I was scared to death of snakes. Had nothing to do with anything a snake had ever done to me, but it had everything to do with the fact that my mother was terrified of snakes. Mm-hmm. So as a boy, you know, if and I mean we're talking non-venomous non-aggressive snakes like a hognose snake you know um which i had friends of mine that played with them when they were babies and stuff and i wouldn't go near one because my mom would freak out right and so for the longest time i just felt i see a snake i gotta kill it you know because they're they're so bad you know and then and this is gonna sound weird but since meeting you um, and, you know, and of course we have a mutual friend who will also go reach around and picking up snakes and stuff, you know, with George Singleton. Yeah. Um, and I started thinking about that and I'm like, well, what has a snake ever done to me? And I want you to know, John, that I have encountered two snakes and both of them have lived. I rescued both of them. One was a, a beautiful uh, gray, like a water snake, mm. red-bellied. Mm. Um, now, I did read enough about that to know it will emit a musk yeah. if you mess with it. Or bite you. <clears throat> or bite you. Yeah. And so yeah. he was he was trapped in my neighbor's uh, fence. And so I took a shovel and spread the, the wood out wide enough so it could get itself through because it was a dog that mm-hmm. was just going nuts. So I felt like karma restored. And then about, I guess about two years ago, uh, my wife went out in the garage and came in and was freaking out. There was a huge <laughs> snake in the garage. And I looked and it was it was markings I had never seen before, but I had common sense to look it up to see what it Google's was. Google's great. Google is great, right? And come to find out, it was a king snake. Um, but it was a white and black. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd never seen that kind chain, of marking before. Yeah. Um, and I, re- you know, I helped fish him on out. And that's a good one. It's a good one, right? Copperheads, exactly. <laughs> so I wanted that boy to be around, you know, and so just kind of fished him on out, talked to him, you know, like, come on, man, I don't want to hurt you. Let's get out of here. And then I felt like, you know, I, I feel like now my my karma is is back to hundred percent. Yeah. Um, you know. One of the things I do to work on my karma, I got from um, James Dickey. <laughs> um, James Dickey has my, my my favorite Dickey poem is the Last Wolverine. Oh yeah, and the last line of the Last Wolverine is "Lord, let you die, but not die out." Yep. Well, every time I pass roadkill, I put up my hand. My I put up my hand and I say that line to myself. Mm-hmm. But I say, "Lord, let you die, but 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 not die out." Change it a little bit um, because I know one of the things I've learned from my biology friends is, you know, I I feel sadness when i see dead things on the road but as long as there's species that aren't dying out right then you can get you can get past even dead individual animals on the road so oh yeah so um just that little blessing is mm-hmm. one of the things 
that I've um I've taken to doing. Well, and it's such a and it's such a um, it's such an intricate system, you know. Yeah. I mean, very you know, and, and I guess if we tie this back to to let's say you know writing writing poetry, right? That one word that to anybody else might live by and just think it's just a word, but changing that one word can completely dismantle the entire poem. Mm-hmm. Um, destroy it even to to a point you just don't get it back. Um, there's always that fear of I I could do too much here and just completely ruin everything that I've been working on for a year. You know, mm-hmm. I feel that way about nature that you know we're not careful, especially with the overdevelopment that we see, um, or not paying attention to it using using art as a way to reflect um, and bring mm-hmm. bring nature back into our our collective consciousness. That once that one thing has been disrupted, once that one thing is gone, the domino effect and how it cascades to everything else can be cataclysmic. Well, here's an example of that. Just yesterday, I, I'm the caretaker. I was the director for 10 years of the um, Good All Environmental Studies Center outside Spartanburg for the environmental studies program I worked for at Wofford. And then I retired two years ago and... Um, we acquired a lease on 200 acres of property upstream for our research and study, mostly floodplain. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, the other members of the department didn't have much interest in pushing lawnmowers and doing. We didn't have no bu- any, but we didn't have any budget for for maintenance. So I I um, partnered with the ex football coach. South Carolina Hall of Fame football coach Mike Ayers, mm-hmm. um, and the two of us have become the volunteer maintenance um, and preserve managers. And um, I was walking in the preserve yesterday with a uh, friend of mine from um, um, over in Greenville who came over and wanted to, I wanted some advice on some bridges I'm building and things like that. So um, one of the things I've feared for a couple of years now is the approach of the of the um, emerald ash borer. I don't know if you've heard about the emerald ash borer. No. The emerald ash borer was first um, identified in 2002. Um, somewhere up north, one of the ports up north, it came in on pallet wood and um, got out of the port, an insect, mm-hmm. and has killed tens of millions of ash trees. Oh, wow. And it's been creeping about a few miles a year towards Spartanburg since 2002. And then my friend yesterday pointed to an ash tree and said, you got the ash borer. It was, I knew it was in Charlotte a few years ago, but um, it's moved on down and it's probably already, I would imagine it might've already been Columbia, but it's going to destroy, kill almost every ash tree in every floodplain wow. in the United States, you know, over time. And, um, you know, trees can be individually treated, but this is super expensive. Right. Um, and that's really the only way. There's no natural pest for it. Um, and so you, you mentioned a minute ago, you know, we don't know. And um, I think it was John Muir who said, touch a strand, touch, touch a strand and the whole web shakes. Well, that ash borer, that, that um, hitchhiker on a, on pallets coming from some somewhere, I think it was an Asian species um, that had natural predators back home, mm. gets here and goes, whoa, right. <laughs> ash trees everywhere. <clears throat> and um, and they get under the, under the bark and they bore these little roads under the bark and end up killing the trees. 
But um, that's a great example of it. And I was thinking, you know, is this um, is there a poem in here? Is there a poem in here? You know, and what if so? What is the poem? I mean, I don't want to be preachy or didactic, right. but um, I took some notes, and maybe there is a poem there some somewhere sure. sometime. Is that is that something that that you kind of wrestle with sometimes when you write about nature that you don't oh, want to yeah. be preachy and oh, yeah. didactic? Yeah, yeah, I really. Like I said, with the Coyote book, this is prose, but with the Coyote book, I really worried that I was going to have this tree hugger position, this this coyote hugger position, and look down on the hunters and this and that. And so I really fought to try to not have that that tone. Mm. Um, I wanted it clear that I had a position, but that my position wasn't the on, wasn't the only position. Right. Yeah, and that's hard to hard to do with poetry sometimes. Yeah, I mean, and and no matter what your position is, somebody's always going to read a position into it for you. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, and, you know, we can only get by for you know, we can only we can only expend so much, uh, you know, of our economy on. Oh, it wasn't me; that was a speaker. You know, and and if 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 we're if we're truly going to be you know authentic about it, um, and I think the reason why I ask is because your work does not come across that way. It does not come across as 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 ever really comes across as preachy. It really comes across as as a person who has has taken the um has has decided to take the necessary steps to observe um which i think is is such an important factor for you know and not just for for poets but for writers mm-hmm. in general um and to report what i've seen mm-hmm. um and when you know sometimes that might mean what you see and what you report is not good yeah here's a great example i'm going to read a poem i would love it this is from anthropocene blues which i owe you more than one beer that i've never <laughs> maybe i have paid back this debt i'm not sure i but, don't know i'm gonna keep that beer coming but man. um but when i you remember but the the audience out there in Podland <laughs> doesn't know this but when i was working on this manuscript it was twice this long mm-hmm. and um and I was struggling. I was I was struggling what to do with this. It had been rejected by a couple of presses I really admired, by some people that I really admired, and they just said, you know, it's not there yet. This is not the book. And so I, I really hacked at it, went at it, took up I took half the book out. And I had this long poem in, in the middle of it. Um and I sent it to you and you read it and made some great um, really great suggestions, but the best suggestion you made is take that long poem and bust it up into a bunch of parts and and call it the same thing in in every poem: erosion, 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 yeah. erosion. Not erosion one, erosion two, but erosion, and um and scatter it throughout. And I did that, and it really is one of the keys to this book. Mm-hmm. And um, this book's coming out in Italy next year. I don't know I know, if I I'm excited about, about that. that. Yeah. yeah. But um, next year, there was an Italian poet who encountered it and got super excited about it and found a small press over there. That's He's cool. translating them. And um, we're bopping back and forth a little bit about them. But this is a really tough poem. This, this is a poem that a friend of mine sent me an email um, about something that happened in her community. She lives on a, in a rural community. And I said, man, I, this is a poem I got to write about. Mm-hmm. It's called Fawn in a Hay Bale. Mm. The black snake in the median, twisted into an unanswered question, is the bloody point. No swerving, 
no faltering as any machine, rolls thecklessly forward. Then to open a hay bale and find the paired ebony hooves still shiny, the auburn hair and splintered bones hidden no more in the sidelong silo. Death is a combine. Death is a spring morning smelling of straw and diesel fuel. <laughs> yeah, the story behind that, you know, I hate to, you can you know, was it one of those modernists that said you can't paraphrase a poem? Right. But the story behind that is, um, most people know this who live in rural areas, but, uh, but um, does hide their phones for the day. Yep. Often, and they'll come back and get them. And does will hide their fawns in hay fields. Mm. And those fawns will just lie there and the combines will just roll over them and they mm. end up in the hay bales. That happened. That's happened. I've heard the story two or three times now. Wow. And when I read that, I just went, oh, man. And, you know, of course, there's what the poem's about, apparently about, and then there's what the poem's really about. Mm-hmm. And it's really a poem about death and and, you know, the rolling forward of morality mortality right and um the snake starts off with the snake like you with the snake in the yard um in the median um the unanswered question is the bloody point i love that yeah it's very very british of me the bloody point it's very british (laughs) i mean but but it 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 has such a a wonderful echo of stafford i think you know i mean you know and of course the the swerving is is oh my god somebody pointed that out to me it could have been you that i'd never noticed that yeah the word swerve is in the poem yeah and stafford's famous poem about throwing a Falling a deer off the highway with it falling in its belly. Yeah, um, had the word swerve in it. And, yeah, I mean, I'm sure being a poetry teacher, that was in the back of my head. Right, well, I mean, yeah. it, it would have to be, but I think there was there's some echoes to that in the fact that you know how do we how do we reconcile with life and death in the natural world? Yeah. I mean, you know, because when I when I when I do um, uh, you know traveling through dark, if I if if I'm teaching a poetry yeah. survey. Um, and just for our readers, the, 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 the deer has been hit by a car. He doesn't throw a live deer off, a, you know, with a fawn in the back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he, but he finds the deer. And of course, there's a fawn. He, he realizes as he's going to move it off the road because he doesn't want somebody else to swerve. Um, cause it's a little canyon river, canyon road. There's a, 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 a fawn still in the belly. And so he, he thinks, <clears throat> you know, he thinks, what, what, what do I do? Um, and ultimately decides, and I'm going to throw the whole thing over mm-hmm. the side. And because it's a hard, you know, and of course, my students are always like, but that's so <laughs> cruel. How can you do that? And I'm like, well, OK, let's put yourself in in that. Do, do you know how to perform a cesarean section on a dead deer and pull out its fawn and keep it alive long enough to get it to an animal hospital in the middle of nowhere? Um, and you who know, would do that? Who yeah. would do that? Right. I mean, you probably run the risk of just mutilating everything, just trying to do something like that. Um, and and there is something about, you know, our living world that that, you know, we're, we're in this um, uh, constant state of, of, of everything being immediate, everything staying with us without realizing Everything is a circle. Um, all and circles it, back. It, and it just all, you know, and, and, and as much as it is a shame that, you know, that sort of thing happens, we should be reminded of it. Uh, and we should, we should have to, to, to see it, to know it, um, you know, and then ultimately, like you said earlier, 
comes back to us to decide what we would do about it rather than you telling people what to do about it. Here's another dark, depressing death of animals point. <laughs> um, this the um the line from the titles from a um from another another poet's um line, um famous modernist poet. Anyway, you might recognize it, might not. I can't think of the guy's name right now, but I but I maybe will in a in a minute. <laughs> First life, rotting life. First life, rotting life. Hunters dumped two deer in slack water behind the shoals. One whole decapitated buck and a small doe butchered, her head trailing like a flesh buoy, the striped, the stripped spine and shanks gnawed by hungry bass. A lens into a community of strangers, their action completed cycles, the deer stalked then shot, committed back to the river and the silence. Mm. <laughs> Oppen, George Oppen. Yeah. Yeah, that, 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 I was reading Oppen and I saw that line and I went, man, I got to write about those deer, those hunters threw off the bridge down below our house. Yeah. And that happened. Here's a little short erosion poem, too. Cool. Most of these erosion poems, they're all couplets. Mm -hmm. um, and um, they a lot of them harken back to A.R. Ammon's famous poem, Garbage. Garbage, yeah. Um, but this one is um, very short. It's two, two, two couplets. Um, erosion. Just called erosion. I have poured myself into this borrowed vessel, then stepped back to see me overflow. I have watched a liquid leave the eyes of two dying dogs and slip a golden stream over the sides and pool below. <laughs> Another dead animal point. <laughs> They're all through here. <laughs> now, now that I'm hearing all these, John, I think, you know, yeah, the, your dead animal poems are... <laughs> yeah. There's a series. Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I wrote somewhere... Um, dead how many dead animals I wrote <laughs> as a question to myself in the front of this book. <laughs> how many dead animals? I mean, and they're just everywhere. They're but, just but everywhere. so much, but so much of our lives, I mean, especially here, especially in the South, yeah. is punctuated by dead animals. I mean, yeah. whether we see them on the side of the road, or we see them in the woods, or we find them in our creeks and in our <laughs> yards, we we're, we are constantly surrounded by that. I mean, I I travel up been down Sumter Highway and I see the aftermath of what logging trucks yeah. do to animals which yeah. ain't much you know it's like it exploded in the yeah. street yeah um but I I don't know I do these things where I try to imagine you know why it was there in the first place what what could have possibly and I am, can't figure out what the hell goes on with armadillos how they end up like they end up but um because they they just look like they're on the side of the road just feet up and swollen yeah um but you know deer like for instance I, I realize they come out to the roads at night because moonlight hits it and they they think it's a you know water and of course lights come through and stuns them um or you know sometimes people blow in the horns freak them out and they, yeah. they they just stand still um or it's the rut and they're just crazy for sex they're just crazy for sex yeah, right hard to get away and <laughs> boom yeah they're, they're out in front of the cars you yeah yeah yeah. So yeah. it's, you know, I, 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 there's no way to avoid it. I mean, no. honestly. Um, no, I mean, and it's, you know, I just finished, um, 
I just finished Stanley Kunis's last book. He was 100 years old, the poet Stanley Kunis, when he published a book about his garden. Mm. And in the book, he excerpts a bunch of old poems, but it, and journal entries about, about his garden. And it's just fascinating to hear this completely lucid 100-year-old man talking about mortality. Mm-hmm. And um, and um, it, it just it really made me think about how one of the ways that I've tried to um, make myself um, conscious of my own mortality is to be conscious of all this other mortality by, around us. Mm-hmm. And um, so many times, you know, we block that out. Right. I mean, who, who sees roadkill? Would you say one out of every 10 cars, uh, 50 yeah. cars, 100 cars? I see every damn dead animal on the road. <laughs> I don't miss any of them. Right. And, you know, I, and I stop and pick up a lot of live box turtles and move them. Because mm-hmm. I keep thinking one more box turtle I've moved is one more genetic um, rat, life raft mm-hmm. for these for these these animals that if I can get this one across the road they're usually males right. except in the spring when they're females and that that's a sad thing when you um when you find a dead female on the road because you know she was looking for a place to lay eggs right but um but I I can't get get past it well I think I mean I think you know the fact that that we're writing about that um, and that artists are are capturing it. You know, gives, I think, even if the subject matter is dark or depressing, you know, by by some standards, the fact that we're able to capture something that's constantly fleeting, constantly moving, can be changed at any given moment, um, completely unpredictable, um, but we're capturing it so that generations from now it's still there and and without harming it like you can capture an animal um and then of course capturing a wild animal does more harm than good um uh for the simple fact that um you know you're 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 disrupting something but in art we're not you know no animals get hurt in the filming of this you know um and and so to me that's that's one of the things that you know back to rivers again ever flowing ever moving but in this particular, you know, it's the same run, it's the same strip, it's the same current that we'll just read over and over and over again. And there's there's a relief in that, I think, yeah, um, yeah. you know, that that goes against our own thoughts of our own mortality, um, you know, or, the, you know, the, the, the old adage that because we have published, we will live forever. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how much true that is anymore. You know, I, it's, it's, yeah, I think we've gone through a, um, you know, so many shifts culturally that it's, um, you know, it's it's all unpredictable now. Sure, sure. That's why we got to do it for the love of it. Um, and like I think I told you, I think you got yours in the mail the other day. But I, one of the the, the things that I'm working on now is this idea that a couple of times a year I'm going to mail out a little booklet of poems or or little patch of prose that I don't think will see the light of day any other way. And I'm going to mail it to my to thirty of my friends and. Um, and um, see what they think and see if if they write me back and so far i've been really really pleased with that um i mailed them out last week i mailed 30 of them out this this little book called the 25 dream guzzles and um i've gotten about 15 responses varying all the way from i really like these to you know a whole paragraph or two email back about about the poems and um, one of the things I was able to do in these 25 poems was um, 
it just reminded me of um, the erosion poems because mm-hmm. they're couplets. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that um, I was able to do with these poems is I've kept a dream journal for 25, I'm 30, 45 years. I've got 45 years of written dreams. And, and, (laughs) you know, a bunch of them are typed into my phone and then a bunch of them are just in a file folder that I'd typed um, either handwritten or typed over 45 years. I probably got eight, nine hundred dreams would be my guess. And um, I didn't know what what I was going to do with this. I knew that I'd for whatever reason, I'd kept them, Mm -hmm. but I had no idea how I would use them. And then when I started writing these these dream guzzles. Um, I just started pulling random lines. I started I started mining my dreams with with no um with no nod toward narrative. Right. Like I always thought that it would be the little stories that in the dream I was standing at the pavilion at Myrtle yeah. Beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I thought that's what I would end up using someday. I thought I would write a poem that began I was standing in the pavilion in Mur- at Myrtle Beach. Um, and then just write the dream down, and that would be the poem. But what's happened is um, they just are these crazy, crazy poems that um, go in all sorts of directions and surprise me, the most I've ever been surprised. Um, can I read a couple? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We got time? Yeah, we got my five-minute warning. All right, I'm going to read two <laughs> dream guzzles. All right. And the guzzle is an old... Um, old form, old Persian form, I think. I mean, I didn't do the formal thing. I just made these couplets that have this kind of random connection. We'll call them American guzzles. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here's, I'm going to read this one. One and then one in the middle. Cool. I dream of house maintenance and a gift of a comforter, maybe a signal of love to come. Listless battles, news maps monitored for movement, foreign hemorrhages, borders, brigades of uncertainty. Intermediate attention is on my health. Stable as dominoes. Long-term prognosis, prognosis sucks, just like everyone's. In the hills, a friend talks of the dark corner, a place where the edges collide, all hotly contested, never settled. Pantries are for storage, not concealment, or both. I jimmy the doors one by one. Meal moths flutter out. <laughs> And one more random one. What would you tell the you that was here before this or the one before that? The surgeon said what I had was unusual. He said he'd never seen it in 400 patients. I read the latest tabla rasa. I have the presence of mind to continue. I can start the baby aspirin. We have moved away from direct, direct cultivation even though the endless grasslands are vanishing. Change of scale is a good thing. Hope breaks the shell like the beak of a baby bird. Damn. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of those, where did that come from? Yeah, but I I gotta say though, I I have absolutely enjoyed reading that collection because they are, they're surprising. Um, And, you know. How important is surprise to you in your poetry? I, you know, I, I, it's everything. Um, You know, I mean, I'm, to me, I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed when, when I read poetry that 
took me or or at least i'm expecting uh, you know it to go somewhere and it takes me somewhere else and when the and and i won't I mean, it doesn't happen all the time when i'm writing because you know sometimes you know you just you have an idea and you're just going to be bullheaded about it you're going to get to whatever that point was but it's in the revisions that I find the surprise. If I cut that poem at this particular juncture and then read it again, and it's like suddenly it's a different poem, um, and 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 they sometimes will shock me um, to where I'm just like, it cannot be anything else but this. Um, or you know, I love it when the you know there's the moments of of of, of levity that is completely juxtaposed with something that is heavy um and because so much of life is that way right i mean we go through these things and i find myself sometimes surprisingly will be laughing or um you know at something that probably most people would not be laughing at and not to make fun of anything but that's just a natural response to me um and it's because that's my reaction to the surprise um i didn't expect it um and so much I think so much around us is 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 expected um you know people do things that you expect them to do yeah um they act in ways you expect them to act and so anytime we have something that's unexpected it's i i want i want to i want to hug it i want to keep it you know more give me more (laughs) give me more of it right right i would be remiss if we ended and didn't talk about the the new book um you know briefly just to let our readers know or listeners know um about um uh, still upright yeah i i i I, um, pulled together 45 years worth of essays and poetry about rivers and moving water or sometimes a little bit of lake water but mostly and I, I realized that I had bunches and bunches of pieces that had never been published in a collection. So I put it all together and then a bunch of poems that had never been in a collection. Um, and then I, I actually took a few poems that had been in other collections and stuck them in there if they were river poems. But I liked it because it was a hybrid thing. You don't mm-hmm. get to do that very often. That's right, yeah. Mercer gave me the opportunity to put poems and nonfiction together in the same collection. And um, and I really like it. It's a big book. It's the biggest book. It's like 330 320 pages or something but but um i've been around um, i'm gonna i'm gonna be around a little bit more this fall reading from it and moving around um but um but it's been fun putting that together it's got my favorite title um it's called still upright and headed downstream the collected (laughs) river writing so um really really had a good time with that if if folks want to you know catch you around in the fall when you're out doing any readings is there a way yeah that can- yeah um i I'm, i'll um i'll put it up on my facebook page um friend me on that and put it up and i'll um um get it out that way i'm not sure when I'm, if i'm good to columbia or not i'm gonna be down to the coast with at merle's inlet with dan turner's operation down there oh, yeah. yeah i'm gonna be up in Asheville. i'm gonna be in atlanta i'm gonna be in macon um and I, I've already been this spring to Radford, Virginia, Silva, North Carolina, Franklin, North Carolina, Spartanburg with Hub City. Um, oh, in Charlottesville this summer. I'm going to be in Charlottesville um, at at the um, old New Dominion bookstore up there in July. So I'll end up doing 10 or 12 
events with this book, which is a lot less than I used to do, but I'm retired and I just That's right. I just can't do the road, the the James Dickey barnstorming the way I used sure. to. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well y'all got traveling and stuff to yeah. do too, you yeah. know. But it does sound like we do have to figure out a way to get you back down to Columbia. Be great. Be great. Yeah. yeah. Especially maybe something connected with the river keepers or maybe a mm-hmm. tr- river trip. Yeah. Um I'd love to get out on the river with a bunch of people. Hey, man, I got on the river with you any day. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Ray, and thanks for doing this. This is a great project of museum. Lucky to have you, and I'm I'm glad it's all working out down here. Man, thank you, and I'm so glad that you were able to come in and and share just amazing work and and just, you know, I, I tell people this. They think I'm joking, but straight up I say John Lane because they're like, do you know John Lane? I'm like John Lane. John Lane's my spirit animal, um, and I mean that. Um, so, Even with short hair and a gray beard. <laughs> that's right. I mean, so if, if you know, if you get a chance to uh, to check out John's work, definitely do so. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll let everyone know uh, some of your titles and stuff like that where they can find in any bookstore. Um, uh, and uh, and thank you so much, John, for 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 coming this way and and spending some time with us love you brother pleasure to be here thanks ray cool you've been listening to binder a production of the columbia museum of art today's episode was hosted by me ray mcmanus produced and edited by drew Barron, with special assistance from joel ryan cook for more information about binder cma exhibitions and programs please visit our website at www.columbiamuseum.org. 